Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Hello and welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I'm your host, Nico Perino. Before I introduce today's conversation with Annie Duke, there's been a lot going on in the world of free speech that's worth touching upon momentarily. For one, there's the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi at Saudi Arabia's consulate in Turkey. Now, I'm sure most of you are familiar with this story. We don't know with complete certainty exactly what happened when Khashoggi entered the consulate on October 2nd to get some documents for his upcoming marriage. But Khashoggi didn't leave the building, at least not on his own accord. And Saudi Arabia is now admitting that he was murdered and that it was premeditated. Now, the story is of immense importance for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that it lays bare the risks that journalists take often to their safety when they criticize or report on powerful and in some cases dictatorial governments. These risks have existed since the first man or woman reported information on a leader, but in our modern world, Many of us too often think that we've moved beyond such brute impositions of power and control. Clearly, we have not. Khashoggi was a regular critic of Saudi Arabia's crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, and the country's king, Salman. While we don't know for certain that the highest reaches of Saudi Arabia's government wanted Khashoggi dead for these reasons, such a motive seems in part likely if the highest reaches of Saudi Arabia's government were involved as uh, all evidence seems to suggest. Uh, Khashoggi, of course, was a resident of the United States. He fled Saudi Arabia in 2017 because he no longer felt safe to speak out in his home country. Uh, Very telling. The irony of this whole situation is that Turkey has been the country responsible for much of the investigation into Khashoggi's death, and its leaders are highly critical of uh, his murder and of Saudi Arabia. I guess um, Saudi Arabia and Turkey compete for control in the region. I'm not quite sure of the geopolitical um, interests at play there, but that's at least what I've, what I've heard. Uh, but Turkey, getting back to the point, has a horrendous record on press freedoms. It's ranked 157th out of uh, 180 countries in Reporters Without Borders' Press Freedom Index, and its government regularly silences, jails, and disappears reporters and critics. They even rank behind Russia uh, on this on this uh, Freedom Index, a regime not known for its appreciation for the role of a free and open press. And we've actually done podcasts in the past on Turkey's uh, crackdown on a free press and free speech that I encourage you all to uh, go back into our archives and check out. Uh, the news, as I as I mentioned, surrounding Khashoggi's murder is developing fast, but as it develops, I hope you all will take a second to review his work as a journalist. Uh, in particular, I want to draw your attention to his last column for the Washington Post. It was published uh, posthumously, and it was entitled, What the Arab World Needs Most is free expression. The title really says it all, um, but little did Jamal Khashoggi know when he wrote that column that he would become more or less a martyr for the very cause of free expression that he so desperately hoped to see materialize one day 
in the Arab world, and and may he rest in peace. Now, um, let's pivot to some good news. Uh, late last month, as some of you might be aware, Ireland voted to remove a law against blasphemy in the Irish Constitution. Blasphemy, yes, you heard that correct. Blasphemy laws generally prohibit criticism of a religion or of a religious figure, uh, and a recent report that I looked at found that one in three countries still have blasphemy laws. Uh, now, not many in the Western world. Uh, Iran and Pakistan are notable uh, outside the Western world for their laws carrying the death penalty. But some Western liberal democracies, such as Ireland, still have or recently maintained blasphemy prohibition. Spain, I believe, is another one. Uh, but most have moved to repeal them in recent years, including Denmark. Now, many Irish citizens didn't even know about their country's ban on blasphemy until uh, the actor and broadcaster Stephen Fry was investigated in 2015 for saying in part that, quote, the God that created this universe, if it was created by a God, is quite clearly a maniac, utter maniac, totally selfish, close quote. Thankfully, uh, the investigation was dropped, but as I often say about speech codes generally, and it's applicable to blasphemy laws as well, which are, of course, speech codes, even if they are rarely enforced, they create a chilling effect, and the process of an investigation should be considered a punishment in itself. But not all news is good news on the blasphemy front. At the same time that Ireland was getting ready to vote to repeal its blasphemy law, the European Court of Human Rights found that defaming the alleged prophet Muhammad, quote, goes beyond the permissible limits of an objective debate, close quote, and, quote, could stir up prejudice and put at risk religious peace, close quote. Now, this case stemmed from two seminars held in Austria back in 2009, in which an Austrian woman whose um, name is concealed in the court documents, she argued that Muhammad's marriage to a young six-year-old or about six-year-old girl when he was about 50 was akin to pedophilia. Uh, now, a court in Vienna convicted the woman in 2011 of disparaging religious doctrines and ordered her to pay a fine, and I guess the case went up to this European court where they more or less held that a blasphemy law is uh, constitutional or whatever the European code is. Uh, this is a scandal, of course, and that the European Court of Human Rights upheld the Austrian woman's conviction is to suggest a medieval understanding of human rights quite literally. To question a religion is to question the first question, how we got here. It's one of the biggest questions we humans have about ourselves and about our world. And as Christopher Hitchens, the late polemicist journalist, used to say, religions make some pretty extraordinary claims for themselves and for others, claims that every human on earth should have a right, a human right, to question, criticize, and debate. But even beyond that, the facts of this case also implicate reporting true information in an educational context. We're talking about a seminar here. Someone claimed that Muhammad's consummation of a marriage with a child of around six, seven, eight, nine, ten, was a kid into pedophilia. Now, I understand that some historians argue this was normal in that part of the world at this time, but is it outlandish for a modern person to consider this pedophilia? I guess according to the European Court of Human Rights, it is. Thus, ending the debate on the question, at least within that jurisdiction. I hope people in the United States will continue to have that debate if they so choose. 
it's frustrating. In any case, I hope this is only an aberration within a larger trend toward eliminating blasphemy laws such as the Irish one. But courts set precedent, and a court for Europe sets precedent for a lot of countries, so I don't know. We'll see. Now on to to our guest today, the decision strategist and poker player Annie Duke. She is our guest today. Annie won a gold bracelet from the World Series of Poker in 2004 and has won more than $4 million in tournament poker during her career. She's also the only woman to have won the World Series of Poker Tournament of Champions. Earlier this year, she released her first book for general audiences, Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts, which is, of course, the focus of our conversation today. That book is, I should say. Annie and I, uh, during the course of this conversation, talk about the role that information, decision-making, and luck play in our society. And I promise uh, that before long, we will get into the free speech tie-in, which is uh, quite strong and I, I believe very fascinating. I hope you all think so as well. Also, with the election around the corner, we talk a bit about the differences between polls, betting markets, and forecasting models, uh, their promise for predicting the outcomes of an election, and of course, their limits. And we put this in the context of the 2016 election in which uh, the polls and the forecasting models had strongly predicted that Hillary Clinton would win Uh, But of course, she did not. And uh, so we analyze sort of what we should take away from that. Moving forward, I spoke with Annie in Fire's Philadelphia studio on Monday, September 24th. And um, I wanted to give a quick show note here before we begin. Listening to the recording of this episode, it's clear I had the makings of a cold when we recorded. So if you hear some sniffling nearer to the end, that's me. And I'm much better now. Thanks for asking. Now I give you Annie Duke. All right, so Annie Duke, welcome on the show. Well, thanks for having me. I'm so excited because this is one of the rare ones where I could just come to the studio instead of be on the phone. I know, I know. It's nice. So I want to start by cribbing from uh, the economist Friedrich Hayek's essay, uh, famous 1945 essay, The Use of Knowledge in Society. Because as I was reading your book, I was reflecting on many years ago when I first read that essay, and I was like, there are some parallels here, specifically as your title suggests, the use of knowledge when the knowledge is incomplete and you need to make a decision. Uh, You argue that the way we make decisions and think about those decisions can be compared to playing poker and is rife with errors. And in Frederick Hayek's essay, he draws parallels between a free market economy and a planned economy and a free market economy. you have a lot of people with different knowledge in different places, but in a planned economy, you have one person, and that knowledge isn't all there in that one per- one person. So I, I, I just want to lay that out there. I was thinking about that essay in the context of your book, but in thinking about an individual, not planned economies or free market economies, what sort of errors do we make in thinking about our decisions? Oh, my gosh. That's such a broad question. <laughs> So let let me actually try to answer it in a broad way, and then maybe we can get down into the details. So here's the general problem. There are two sources of uncertainty for us. Uh, Source number one is luck. Those are things that are outside of our control, and you can broadly think about those as as things that um, uh, are are happening in the world that you can't make any difference. So, for example, I can't control the actions of somebody else, like just as an example. Um, 
so if I'm going through, if I'm following the rules of the road and someone doesn't follow the rules of the road, I can't, I don't have any control over that. So if they hit me, there's, that's, that's. So if you're going through a green light and they go, they run a red light, you can't control that. Right. So you can think about that in poker that um, I don't control the cards that are getting dealt. Yeah. That's, that's random and I don't have any control over that. Right. Um, So there's luck, but then there's also, um, hidden information. You can also think about it as information asymmetry. There are things that I know, and then there's lots of information that I don't know. So you can think in poker, there's an asymmetry. I know my cards, but I don't know yours. And for you, same thing. You know your cards, you don't know mine. Um, and this is generally true of any kind of decision that we have to make. We just don't have perfect knowledge of the world. Now, what that means is that when we make decisions, um, any given decision can have a broad set of possible outcomes, even though only one outcome will actually occur. So there's this huge set of possible outcomes because of the intervention of luck and because we don't have all the information. So we're making a decision that's going to be a little bit noisy, right? And what that means is that there's lots of ways things can happen. So now the problem for us is that what that creates is a very loose connection between the thing that actually happens and the decision quality, right? Because uh, we can make a very good decision. We can have it turn out well. We can make a very good decision. We can have it turn out poorly. We can make a bad decision. We can have that turn out well. We can have make a good decision, um, and we can have that turn out well Yeah, well, well in your book well. you talk about the situation uh, a, a CEO or someone uh, is on the board of some company and their president wasn't doing all that great of a job, wasn't doing well compared with other people in the market, other companies in the market, and they decided, decided to fire the CEO, or was it the president? I forget exactly. Yeah, it's about, uh, you have the contours. Get the contours, right. essentially, yeah. right. Um, but then they hire a new CEO or a new president, and it doesn't work out well for them. Uh, the person's not performing well, and the con- company continues to slide. And you talk to this person about the decision process that went into firing that first CEO or president. And to you, it seemed pretty sound, but you could never predict what will happen as a result of that decision because of the intervention of luck or incomplete information in hiring this new person or other market forces that come into it. So you, you, tell, you tell us to separate the decision from the result. Right. And th- this, is, this is generally where all of our decision problems come in. So because there's this noise, because there's this looseness in this connection, it allows for all these biases in the way that we sort of try to make order of the world. Because we're not really good at luck and hidden information. So the example, that I'll get to the CEO example. So let me give a simple example. So in chess, there isn't a lot of places for us to go wrong in terms of our interpretation of why things turn out the way they do. Because in chess... If I lose a game of chess to you, what do we know about my decision-making in comparison to yours? That is poor. It's worse, right? And that's because we're taking away this very strong luck element. Like, you know, the pieces sort of stay where they are until someone moves them through an active skill. And I know that those pieces are going to stay where they are. Um, So we're taking away that very strong luck element, like you roll a dice and off comes your bishop. Um, And we don't have the hidden information. There isn't the same information asymmetry. There's And there's a little bit, but not a lot. So I can see your whole position. You can see my whole position. That means that I can see every possible move that you could make. You can see every possible move that I can make. What that means is that the connection between the way the game turns out and the quality of the decisions that you make is incredibly tight, which 
actually eliminates a lot of the errors that we can make in terms of trying to work backwards from outcome quality to decision quality, right? Is this why AI, for example, almost always beats a human in chess? Yes. Because because they know all the possible moves. They can brute force it till the end of the game. Uh, Yeah, I haven't heard about how that plays out when you're playing poker, but there is more opportunity for luck. Like, no matter how smart the artificial intelligence is, it can't predict the next cards that are going to come. It can predict the likelihood but yeah. not what exact cards are going to come. Yeah, so AI is doing a little bit better in poker, but it's been slow. It really lags behind mm-hmm. chess for that reason. So it, it seems to be do, doing pretty well in one, one-on-one situations um, where you're sort of limiting the yeah. problem. You're putting some limitations on the problem. We'll see how it does as you start to expand that set. But that's exactly why. So, so we have, because of this loose connection, there's all sorts of ways that we can go wrong. So one of the ways that we can go wrong, as you pointed out, is this resulting problem. So if we think about chess, if I lose a game, I know that I played poorly. And if I win a game, I know that I played well in relation to my opponent, not in an absolute sense. So that's fine. But what we do is we try to act as if Chess applies to everything. So in the case of poker, it would be like saying if I win a hand, that necessarily means I must have played it well. And if I lose a hand, that necessarily must mean I played it poorly. But we know that that's not so because there's too loose a connection. So it's actually a really big decision error we make. In the case of the CEO, you can see this. I think I want to pretend like we're playing chess because people are really uncomfortable with this uncertainty. So what happened with the CEO was he had a division president. The division president was underperforming compared to their competitors. So he went – I just had asked him, you know, when I come in and do trainings, very often I'll have people come in prepared with an answer to this, the, the following two questions. What was the best decision you made in the last year? What was the worst decision you made in the last year? Now, I'm still waiting for one day someone to come in and say, I made this terrible decision and it worked out better than anything I've ever seen. Nobody yeah. ever does that. They always tell me the worst outcome they've had in the last year and the and the best outcome they've had in the last year, which is very – so they're acting like it's chess. Like, oh, I've got to answer this question about what's the worst decision I made. This thing turned out horribly. Clear, clearly, that's it. So that's what this guy did. He came in and he said, well, I fired my division president. I've now spent the last year on a search, and I haven't been able to find anybody to replace him. Um, and I said, oh, OK, that sounds like a terrible outcome. But what about the decision process? And as you said, when we actually dug down into that, it was very good. They had really gone through an incredibly thoughtful process. But they, they had actually even considered splitting the job into two in order to sort of play to that person's strengths and then having, like, a co-president. Yeah. Um, and they had actually thought about, like, past searches and things like that. So so it turned out It was a very it, thorough decision. It was a very thorough decision, very well thought out, given uh-huh. the information they had, you know, and what they could control. It, you know, it was actually a good decision. It just turned out poorly. So that, I mean, this is where we really have trouble, right? So if we think about it, we can think about it prospectively and retrospectively, retrospectively, as we have these experiences, right, the feedback of how things turn out, that's supposed to what be what's supposed to help us learn. But you can see that when it's not a really clear signal for how good the decision was, we take all the wrong lessons from it, and it actually prevents us from learning. And then prospectively, it's really hard because we just aren't comfortable with luck and we aren't good at knowing what we don't know and until we get really comfortable with that we can't actually create a really good map of the future which makes it actually really hard to make a decision prospectively so we get it coming and going yeah. basically when 
I so I just recently purchased. A, Aaron's going to overhear our audio engineer is going to be tired of hearing me talk about this, but I recently purchased a condo. And you actually talk in your book about people's decisions in purchasing homes, uh, you at least reference. And I just purchased a condo. I loved it. I fell in love with it. I moved in a couple of weeks ago and I arrived. There was about a month and a half before, between when I purchased it and when I moved in. I arrived boxes in hand to find that the water heater had ruptured. Oh, no. And there was standing water in three rooms and thousands of dollars worth of damage. And I had actually known that the water heater was old when I purchased it. I brought an inspector in. We inspected it. Um, but I thought I, you know, I even bought a home warranty to ensure myself against the broken water heater, but it had been running fine and it had been running fine for years. And I thought, you know, I'll just monitor this. I'll keep an eye on it. The water heater had ruptured during the time that I purchased it. And when I moved in and one of the pieces of knowledge or information that I didn't have was that if you leave a water heater on and you're not using any of your appliances like your dishwasher, your washer dryer, or your faucet, uh, water has thermal expansion and expands. And it puts pressure on the water heater and that over time can cause it to rupture. So I thought I had made a good decision with all the information I had, but I didn't have enough information. And, and it seems to me what you're arguing is that you can make a good decision based on the knowledge that you have, but there might be other knowledge in there that might result in a poor outcome. But that doesn't mean you made a poor decision necessarily based on the information that you had. So when you're playing a hand of poker, for example, you can make all the right bets based on all the odds, you know, you know, guessing what the cards are in other people's hands. But for example, if you've never played this opponent before, you don't know how they bluff or if they bluff, and you can lose that, that hand as a result. Yeah, so I actually this that water heater example is actually a really good way to talk about this. So, so I appreciate the example. One of the things that we need to think about as outcomes occur is almost always there's new information that reveals itself after the fact. Mm -hmm. So the question that you want to ask yourself is is that something reasonably that I could have known beforehand? Or is this something that would have only revealed itself afterwards? So if the answer is no, it's uh, this isn't something reasonably that that I guess you know, I could me, have known Nico, that. Yeah. No, but like I'm not I'm not like a plumber. General like, contractor. I'm, not, I, I'm also not like a, you know a physicist. Like uh -huh. I or you know whatever. Like I don't. This is not something that was reasonably within what I could have known. The inspector could have known it, right? Like they could have maybe conveyed it to me, but I wouldn't have even known to know, ask the question yeah. of them. So if they weren't going to volunteer that to me, which is in the luck category, it's not actually a kind of a reasonable thing for you to know about. That if you don't use the water heater, the chances of something like this happen, are, you know. So now what we want to do is really ask ourselves that question because then we can decide um, basically between – was this something that I actually made a mistake not knowing? Or is this just a new piece of information now that I can learn from so that going forward I now can add this into the types of things that I would put under consideration? That's and, how I'm analyzing it right, right now. But at the time I was like – I should never. I should have never purchased this condo. Right. I should. I was catastrophizing is what I was doing. I, you know, I. I had a happy life as a renter. I made yeah, terrible decisions. Exactly. Here. So we get that global stuff, but then also, kind of on the micro level, what will be happen is we'll say, I should have seen that coming. I should have known. How could I have been so stupid? That was so dumb. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, it wasn't. It wasn't a reasonable thing for you to know. Now. One of the ways that we can help ourselves to sort of put a pin in that so that we don't fall for that trap, it's called hindsight bias, um, thinking that something was inevitable to happen, um, is at the time of the decision, 
we can say to ourselves the following question. Is there some piece of information that I think would radically change the decision that I'm about to make? Um, and if there is, yeah, go find it. Like, And it has to be findable within the time period, right? So if I'm trying to decide, uh, say, between two cars, right, and um, I'm trying to decide which car to buy and I'm like 60% to buy car A and 40% to buy car B and I need a new car, I can say, well, okay, I've got two weeks to make this decision. I'm 60-40. That seems pretty good. It seems like I should just go ahead and buy car A. But before I actually bank that decision, I can just ask myself the question, is there somebody's opinion or some piece of information or something that I could know right now that's, that would actually really radically change this decision for me? If the answer is yes, go find it, right? Oh, wait, my cousin's a mechanic and he really, you know, let me go talk to him. If the answer is no, I'm already 60-40. There's nothing that's going to really radically change it. Then just go ahead and make the decision. Then if it turns out that your particular car is a lemon, you can't be upset. You don't. You, there's no way for you to know that that particular car, that specific car that you bought was going to have mechanical problems because it happened to be a lemon. Yeah. Right? Like. So it's the same thing with you. It's like, how could you possibly know that water expands and that that, you know, yeah. and then not only that, but that's only going to happen a certain low percentage of the time. And you did the right thing. You got an insurance policy against some crazy thing happening anyway. Yeah. Although it must have been annoying. I must say. Uh, it, well, it derailed me for like yeah. three weeks just because you had, I I had never owned before. So I didn't know who I was even supposed to call. So it turns out you call your insurance company when that sort of things happens. But then you also need to find a general contractor to do all the work. And I can't move anything. And I was supposed to put flooring in. You couldn't put the flooring in until the drywall was fixed. So it was, it was just a big headache. But theoretically, I mean, I in a perfect world, I would have had all the knowledge and information to know exactly how I was supposed to treat that water heater. But I thought I was doing the right thing by getting the insurance policy, bringing in an inspector, asking them. But there's just that one yeah. piece of information that I was missing. But here's this very interesting thing. It still might not have changed your decision even if you knew. Yes. Because if you really looked at that and you said, what percentage of the time is this actually going to burst on me? Mm-hmm. Right? The percentage of the time is likely pretty low. Well, I would have turned off the water. That's well, probably what right. I would have done. So you you may have – yeah, you would have turned off the water. Mm-hmm. But – but you may not have. You uh-huh. may you may have said like I've got an insurance policy and this is really you know this really low probability. Well, there, there's so another whatever. there's another wrinkle in it too. I was uh, emptying the water heater that night that it happened, and I was bringing the hose out from the water heater into the drain. And a general contractor just so happened to be working in a unit next to me, and I said, "Hey, can you take a quick look at this?" Turns out that if you drain your water heater you're also supposed to shut down um, the fuse that goes to it because if the water yeah, heater is they... empty and the fuse and the electricity is still onto it, it can start a house fire. And, See? But I would have never known that. Right. That's what I I would have never known that had a general contractor not so happened to have been working in the unit next to me and I just so happened to ask him for his right. opinion. And so it's like I, I, life is a knowledge problem. Life is a knowledge. Right. And this is what Hayek is talking about in his use of knowledge in the society. is like central planning does, can't aggregate enough knowledge to – distribute resources efficiently. The way that knowledge works is it's very diffuse and the free market is best at garnering that knowledge in a way that a central planning commission just can't. Yeah. So I would would go back to this idea of liquidity, right? Like you have an information market and there's lots of different ways that you can create a market that's illiquid, right? So I can create a market that's illiquid for myself by not going out and looking for information. So now I'm not, I don't have free flowing information that I can go and try to find. But you can think about this in, in, in like the difference when you open up the market of ideas to people. So if you're in a little tiny town in 1850 and you have your one doctor 
this is really an a illiquid market in terms of medical information, yes. right? You get to go to that one person and they tell you whatever they're going to tell you and this is all you need to know. And now when we think about it, even if you live in that tiny little town where there's only that one doctor and there's no doctor within hundreds of miles, you have a computer and you can go look at, you know, all these different sites where you can start to research what your symptoms are. Research. In fact, you, there are doctors who you can access and actually speak to through the internet. So that creates liquidity in the market. So this is what we're trying to think about is the more viewpoints, the more people that we can bring in, the more people have different perspectives, the more information sources that we have, the more liquid we can create, not just the, the market in general, but also we want to think about our information market, right? How are we creating liquidity in our information market? And the way that we're doing that is through making sure that we have access to lots and lots of information. But part of that is not just access. We have to be seeking it. That's number one. And number two, and this is really, really important, is that we have to have like a liquid mindset, which means we have to decide that we're going to be open-minded to the information that's coming across our path because otherwise we're creating illiquidity in a different way where it's basically we just have like a shield and information that doesn't agree with us is just bouncing off of the shield. And so then even though we have access to lots of information and we could actually really reduce the information asymmetries and the hidden information that we have, we're just not paying attention to it. Yeah, well, I mean, this is a good segue into my next point. This is, so to speak, the free speech podcast. A lot of this book, when I read it, struck me as an argument for free speech. Insofar as free speech, a free speech regime allows for more information to enter the marketplace. So there are a lot of different justifications you can have for free speech. You can have, you know, it's good for democracy. Why is it good for democracy? Because it allows different perspectives to come in so you don't get the confirmation bias, which Cass Sunstein talks about in his in his study on judges. Um, it also defends individual autonomy, which may not have a strong connection with this information concern. Uh, it allows for freedom, but it also allows for a marketplace of idea, the production and dissemination of new knowledge, uh, our discovery of truth and viewpoint diversity. And so I'd say like 75% of those justifications, and I'm sure I'm leaving some out, have some connection with your argument that what we need in order to make good decisions is more knowledge and access to more knowledge. And what makes a good decision is our ability to go and seek it out or our desire to go and seek it out and look at it, look at it in a uh, sort of unbiased way, putting, get, putting to si aside those cognitive biases that we often engage in, such as motivation, motivated reasoning, which you, which you talk in your book. Did you realize, and I know you read John Stuart Mill because you reference him in your book, did you realize sort of the intersection between those two things as you were writing it? Or um, just when I invited you on the podcast <laughs> and I suggested there might be an intersection? No, I, I was thinking about that in advance. You know, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm just, I think it's really, really important that we approach the world not asking why are we right, but why are we wrong? Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think that that's the natural way that our brainware is installed. Yeah. I think that our brainware is installed to say, why are we right? Why are we right? Why are we right? And I, I talk about it as approaching the world through this um, reasoning to be right as opposed to accurate. Um, and this is where sort of the title comes in, this idea of thinking in bets, that what happens is that when you ask somebody to bet on something. You call it want to bet? Want to bet, the title exactly. of your chapter or whatever. It causes the uncertainty to bubble up to the surface. Remember I said we sort of like to – we want the world to be a game of chess, right? We want there to be these really strong connections between what happens and why, 
right, that we should be able to say for sure why. We don't like randomness. Actually, there's a lot of work in sort of the conspiracy theory world, which says that part of the reasons why why we're very attracted to conspiracy theories is they sort of solve for randomness, right? Like we don't like the idea that something just randomly bad can happen to us, um, as an example. So when you start framing things as want to bet, what happens is it causes you to actually shine a light on the uncertainty. So like as an example, one of the things that um, people are saying right now is uh, the Democrats are going to take the House in November. And if you – when somebody says that, notice they're expressing that with certainty. It, cause, it costs them nothing to say that. It costs them nothing to say that. But if I now said to that person, do you want to bet on that, mm-hmm. uh, you get the same response every time. Well, I didn't say for sure. Yeah. Right? That's what they say. I didn't mean 100 percent. Well, OK, but you said it as if you meant 100 percent and your brain was acting as if it was 100 percent. So as soon as I say, do you want to bet, they start to say, well, oh, wait a minute. I didn't mean 100 percent. And what that causes is to not say um, – Am I sure? But how sure am I? Which is a really different question. Which is the question you argue we should always be asking ourselves. And it doesn't sound like that much of a difference, but it's a huge difference. Am I sure is saying that there's some sort of bar, which is certainty, that I can get to, which is completely unrealistic. How sure am I is saying, I know I live in the middle. So let me try to figure out how sure I am. Um, And then what I can do is try to narrow down the uncertainty. Now, in order to do that, in order to make a good bet, what now happens I become hungry for the marketplace of ideas. I want to hear other people, what they have to say. I want to hear their speech. I want to hear people who disagree with me in particular because I already know why I'm right. I already know why I believe that the Democrats are going to take the House in November. What's really important now for me to decide whether I want to make that bet with you is to go figure out why they might not take the House in December because that allows me to see how sure am I in terms of what kind of bet would I be willing to make here. So it forces you to acknowledge Number one, that there's a lot of luck involved. Now to November, that's a lot of time. There's a lot of stuff. This is We're living in very highly volatile political times. There's a lot of things that can happen between now and then. So that's the luck element. I can't do anything about that. But then there's the hidden information element, right? Like I'm not an expert in districting. So I can look at the generic vote, right? Mm-hmm. But that doesn't necessarily tell me – How is that going to play out in a highly gerrymandered state like, say, Wisconsin, right? So now I'm going to start – I'm going to start going and looking at that. I'm going to become really information hungry and go start to try to narrow down my own uncertainty. How can we do that without creating that open-mindedness to every single point of view? And the minute that you approach the world saying, well, why might I be wrong? Now – Free speech becomes really, really important because I don't want someone to decide what I get to hear and what I don't get to hear, what is useful for me or what is not useful for me. And the other thing that I think it does is it really makes you focus in on that thing of, well, it's fine when you agree with it. But what happens when someone's making those decisions where you don't agree and now that's cut off from you? Yeah. Right? So in this sort of situation, I should have been seeking out people. So after I made my decision about the water heater, I should have been seeking out people who would disagree with my decision about the water heater and trying to figure out why that might potentially be a bad decision. In your book, you talk about uh, the Hillary Clinton-Donald Trump election and how all the polls and everyone thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win because I, I forget what the exact percentage was, 75%. She had a 75% chance, likelihood. But for most lay people, they think, oh, wow, she's a shoe thing. But she still had a one in four or one or, or one in three chance of losing the election. And it just so happened that 
that's what happened. But for us, we look at that and we say the pollsters were wrong. Yeah. So um, I have all sorts of like my head keeps exploding about Uh this like polling versus betting markets versus forecasts. And people really kind of mash them up, number one. And then because people are uncomfortable with uncertainty, when you express something probabilistically, they have these sort of defaults to yes, no, and maybe. Mm -hmm. So this is what kind of happens. So when you look at, uh, say, Nate Silver's forecast, so and then I'll just talk quickly about the difference between a betting market, a forecast, and a poll. But when you look at his forecast, which was based on lots and lots of polls, what you saw in the last week was – Somewhere, you know, 60-40, eh. right. Now, there is nobody who understands probabilities who would say Hillary Clinton is going to win the election. They would say she's she's more likely than Donald Trump to win the election. But, you know, that's what they would say. She's more likely. But the question that I have for people who then say, well, they were wrong, is, okay, so I have a coin. 65% of the time, it's going to land heads. of the time, it's going to land tails. How much of your net worth would you like to bet on a single flip that it lands heads? Yeah, zero. <laughs> are you are you betting all of it? I don't know. <laughs> I'd probably bet a little bit more than zero. Yeah, you but should. Well, you're yeah, a favorite, you right? Yeah, you should. So, I mean, you're 65 percent of the time you're going to win the bet. So yeah. you, should, you should certainly be willing to take that bet, even money. But you're not betting your, your net, whole net worth. worth yeah. No, like you're um, you're like all right. I've got a gun to your head. Uh-huh. Let's go. You're going to be like, no, thank you. Take the way the. Gu-. But yet, people acted as if that was the case. That they would bet their life on it because afterwards they were like so incredibly shocked. And this has to do with this idea of, remember I said the prospective problem of not accepting the uncertainty so that you can't make good decisions. And then when you don't view the future in the right way, as there's lots of ways it can turn out and they each have some probability, then after the fact, you're much more likely to say you were wrong. And then we have this further problem with polls, forecasts, and betting markets. So betting markets are like a free market economy where we're just like sort of betting against each other. Um, and you saw this like in Brexit, right, where there was a betting market in London and people were just sort of betting so that there was equal action on both sides. Now, Remain looked like a big favorite there. Of course, it's London where, you know, everybody yeah. thinks Remain is going to win the day. So that's just people betting against each other. Then there are polls. Um, well, then there are forecasts, which is some sort of model. Mm-hmm. which says, given the data that I have and given what I know about past experiences and I have this model of how I think it's going to turn out, that would be Nate Silver. Yeah. It's 65-35 Clinton, um, you know, Trump. And then you have a poll. So all a poll is, and this is what people don't understand, polls cannot be wrong or right. They can have bad methodology. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. But it's like I'm taking a mock vote that day. So all I'm doing, it's like August, and I take a mock vote, and the mock vote says it's, you know, 58% Democrats and, uh, you know, 42% Republicans. And this is the way that people would vote if we voted that day. And the methodology could be bad because it could not, it might not consider third party candidates or Correct. people might change their votes or. It could the, be a bad sample size. Or it could people be, might not turn out to vote. Exactly. The people you polled. Yeah. Unrepresentative sample. Yeah. Uh, you could, you know, it matters if you're calling people on the phone or doing it on the internet or uh-huh. whatever. There's all sorts of things. And Nate Silver's pretty good at rating the quality of the polls. So this is what we have to remember. A poll can't be wrong or right. It's just a mock vote of a certain set of people. Mm-hmm. And the poll is an input into a forecast or a betting market. Yeah. So when people say the polls were wrong, it's it's like a completely absurd thing. I actually saw something the other day where there was a poll that came out showing Cruz plus six against Beto O'Rourke. And then the next day, 
there was a poll that came out which showed O'Rourke plus two. And somebody – there was all this stuff on the internet. These polls contradict each other. And it's like, well, no, they don't. They're this two mock votes. That doesn't make any sense. So if I'm if I'm someone who cares about the outcome of this election and I want to get the best possible information to determine what's going to happen, what should I look at? Forecasting models, betting or prediction markets or, or polls? What do you think is the best way to look at this? And then I want to ask you about prediction markets. Yeah. So I think in general, most people can kind of ignore the polls because you want somebody smart to help you with this problem. Like, okay, how good is the poll? Um, So how much should I weight this poll? And then how much should I – so that's the methodology thing. So that's an in-the-moment thing, right? Like how how good is the methodology of this poll? But then also how predictive have have polls been – in this particular type of election. So it matters, for example, um, uh, polls are not as predictive in a small homogeneous state like New Hampshire versus a large diverse state like uh, actually Pennsylvania is a pretty, yeah, good, pretty example good example of a large diverse state. Um, so so or that Ohio. right or Ohio right like so polls tend to be pretty good in those states uh-huh. which are large and diverse um, versus small and homogeneous uh, and then and then you don't know like that particular polling company like what their sampling methods are um, and then the other thing that you don't know is how predictive are they given how far out from the from the uh, the the vote they are so if you take a poll two months beforehand it's much less predictive than one minute beforehand one minute beforehand it's very predictive yeah because so, two months beforehand you might not know about the the excess Hollywood tape the Donald right. Trump you know it's just like so yeah. this is go find go find an expert so uh-huh. you have to so I'm not an expert in all of this stuff and gosh I don't want to take the time to become one <laughs> so I recognize that and so I go try to find someone who can actually sort of vet this for me. So, you know, Nate Silver, I think, is very good at vetting this information. Um, and you can go look at his forecast to get a good sense. Uh-huh. Now, betting markets, it's kind of the same thing as a polling problem. It depends on how liquid the betting market is. So this is kind of back to Hayek, right? Uh-huh. The more liquid the betting market is, in other words, the more diverse the group of people betting against each other, generally the betting market is going to give you a pretty good answer. Because you have more people bringing more knowledge to bear on the question and there's skin in the game in the way there's exactly. not in a, in a forecasting model. Exactly. Because so they're the, putting money on it. Right. So the reason why the betting markets looked weird and remain was because all the action was coming from London. So that creates illiquidity in terms of England in general, right? So what you've got is people who sort of are getting a particular slice of the information, but you're not going to get a really liquid market there. So, so you need a liquid market that spans the the whole geography of the country. If correct. it's just London, then you have a skewed Right. And but that's okay because the betting market isn't supposed to tell you the answer there. It, you know, remember that uh-huh. what the the bookies want is half and half. They want they want to break even sides. and take the fees. They want right. So they don't really care. Yeah. So in terms of a consumer, if you want to know whether the betting market is telling you something useful or not, um, there's kind of two things. One is is it a liquid market, and two is is it something that's like really really highly specialized where crowdsourcing wouldn't be great. So like the example that I can give to you of that is if I have a group of people trying to decide on something and I ask a whole bunch of people like what's the population of England this is pretty common knowledge for people in America that taking the average of the guesses is going to be pretty good but if I ask them what's the um, population of Malaysia now I'm not going to get as good an answer because Americans don't have as good information about that this again it all goes back to information so it's probably better to ask just one expert there so again you want to sort of think about that in terms of what is the question that's being asked of the betting market? Is it something that generally people are going to know about? 
or is it something that's like some sort of super highly specialized thing, at which point it's better to just go back? So that's a connection to Hyatt too. I mean, if the central planner is, for example, a very successful hog farmer, they might have very good information on how to run hog farms, but not how to run maybe perhaps like a soybean market. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, we don't want to we need to understand when is a crowd going to be pretty good mm-hmm. versus when do you really need to go to an expert. So let's say you have a very liquid market, a prediction market or betting market. Right. Um, would that be more informative than a forecast, like a Nate Silver forecasting, just because they're skin they're in gonna, the game? They're going to tend to agree, probably. I mean, they, if you have a really does good the forecasting model incorporate the betting markets typically, or well, it incorporates the same information, information that betting markets that the are, yeah. betting market is is getting. So that's the thing. Because what is the betting market looking at? They're looking at all of the polling. Yeah. Right. And and they're actually kind of looking at Nate Silver as well. Right. Uh-huh, like yeah. they're looking at the forecast as inputs into that. So so generally you're going to get very similar inputs um, into those two into those two things. That the nice thing about the betting market is that when you have a really liquid betting market, you have people betting against each other. Where one person, all their friends are saying. Remain is going to win, and another person, all their friends are saying leave is going to win. And so what happens is that a lot of the bias kind of washes out mm-hmm. when it's liquid. Yeah. Right. So in the United States, prediction markets are illegal, right? Mm-hmm. If you play if you play them with money. They have them. There's like predict it, which is not, you know. It needs to be offshore, right? It, the money well, needs that, to be. Predict it isn't, isn't for money. That's the point. Like they do have ones that aren't. Aren't where but that's a problem. Money. That's yes. because that's a problem because there's no as the same Taleb would talk about in his most recent book, Skin in the Game. There's no skin in the game, so you you're not you don't have that incentive to put aside your biases. Well, skin, skin doesn't have to be money. I mean, and I think this is a really beautiful. Well, I mean, I guess you could it thing. could be reputation too, but the it reputation could be reputation. It could be leaderboard. Right, it could okay. be badges. It could be gamifying. The... It could be gamifying it, which is what like Predictit does. So mm-hmm. you can have one where where the skin in the game is the money. You can have things where you've gamified it in some way where there are other things that can create skin in the game. But presumably some of the incentives are stronger than the others. I'd imagine money would be more – It depends. I mean those badges – like what – I watch my kids play these video games and, you know, there's no money involved Uh whatsoever. And they're very motivated by leaderboards and badges. So I I think it kind of depends on what motivates you. Like for some people, as an example – uh, health creates a lot of skin in the game, and for other people, it doesn't. You know, and I think that this tends to be like what what it, it just needs to be something that you really value. Yeah, right. So for some people, reputation is enough. That's enough skin in the game. I'm putting my reputation on the line with what I'm saying, and that for some people, that's enough. Huh. So because I was I was thinking, I mean, it, it, we talked about those justifications for free speech earlier: democracy, individual autonomy, freedom. But if knowledge is your most important justification for free speech, then legalizing betting markets or prediction markets could, I'd love it. Could you? I mean, you could make a First Amendment argument for it because yes. it would provide people with more information about everything from politics to who's going to win this sports game to the likelihood that there's going to be. Uh, I, I don't know, a house fire. I, it could be anything. Yeah. I mean, anything in which uh, knowledge would be useful in making the decision. I, I think it would be incredibly useful. And people can go look at um, – and this is actually a different kinds of a kind of usefulness in terms of, again, if we think about like information that's available to us. We can look at what the world's betting markets 
um, like Betfair are saying about, for example, the American election, that's really interesting, right? Because then you get to see what somebody, what what the European market is thinking about America. That's a really nice way to get an alternative perspective because we live in America. We see, we consume American media. We talk to Americans. It's really good for us to go and look at what the betting markets in Europe are saying in order to get another perspective. Because they are legal in Europe. They, they are, are legal there. And most of the arguments, I think there's a huge information argument, a huge free speech argument for yeah. allowing these betting markets. It's a way for people to exercise their speech in a way that actually gives people pretty good information. Uh Um, Most of the arguments that I've seen against legalizing betting markets um, go in sort of the the moral category, right? Like it's immoral, it's bad, or or a a real sort of concept creep on direct harm, Mm -hmm. right? Where it's like, well, I knew a guy and he was gambling and he lost his house and his children were very sad because of it, which is, that's a very sad story. I don't, I, I don't particularly think that that's an argument against preventing people from gambling. Yeah. I mean, well, it, if that's your argument against prediction market, art, uh, markets, that would have you would have to argue against legal, you know, making alcohol. all, yeah, alcohol, almost anything right. in which there could exactly. be an adverse, adverse effect. Well, look, I can take that. I know a guy and he uh, drove too fast and then he, you know, got in an accident and his he got hurt uh-huh. and then he went bankrupt and his children were sad. Like we can, you can Well, make that's those. the risk of freedom is that people right. have the, have personal responsibility and the option to make adverse choices. And right. when you decide whether you're going to speed, you weigh the, the joy you get from driving down that road really fast and seeing the trees go by you quickly right. versus the, the increased likelihood that you might get an accident and hurt yourself. And people in a free society are free to make those decisions um, right. or get a ticket. I mean, we, we place certain guardrails about it, but we don't outlaw driving, for example. Well, that's because... what I'm saying. It's sort of the, it's sort of the idea of outlawing driving uh-huh. as opposed to having consequences for the behavior. So I think that the problem is that for almost any activity that you can engage in, I can construct an argument that brings us to, and then your children were sad, yeah. right? I mean, and I think that that's the problem. So I think that we really want to constrain what we mean by direct harm. So that that's just my opinion on betting markets. And I think that, uh, you know, the, the inform- I, I agree that the information that you can get from that in terms of having being able to make good choices about the information is really – I think it's really important. And I know that for myself very often because we all live in bubbles. Like as much as we try not to, we all live in bubbles. I'm always quite interested in when the market disagrees with me. You know, I mean, I think that if you look at some of the most successful investors ever, they always start with that first question. When they have a really strong apartment uh, – sorry, apartments. Yeah, I'm, stuck on your, I'm stuck on your water heater. They probably have a strong apartment right. too if they're successful betters. Right. <laughs> Stable have a, foundation. When they have a really strong opinion where they're going against the market, before they – if they're very successful, before they make that investment, they always check themselves and say, well, wait a minute. Why does the market disagree with me so much uh-huh. here? So it's such valuable information to have the market disagree with you, right? For you to think that something's going to supposed to have a particular input, you know, impact, uh-huh. and then it doesn't. That's really, really telling for you to understand that other people think differently than you do, and go find out why because that's going to help you. Well, that's what they did, and what was the movie, uh, The Big Short? Yeah, that, I mean, exactly. that, what, what they did is these guys were trying to figure out why this other investor was shorting uh, these subprime mortgages. So what they did is they went out to Las Vegas and started talking to people who were 
uh, giving out these mortgages that then these investment com- and banking companies would you know package into these subprime mortgage things. And and they found that, wow, there's information that we weren't aware of just sitting right. at our it desk here in New why, York. Why does this person disagree with me? Yeah. And then you go find out why. Now, what most of our reactions to somebody disagreeing with us is that guy's an idiot. Mm-hmm. Now, if you say, well, that ha ha ha, how dumb he's doing this silly thing. You don't ever go and explore it and then you miss the opportunity. And it could be an opportunity like they have, but mostly at the core of it, what it is, it's an opportunity to to calibrate your belief. It's an opportunity to change your model of what the objective truth is. Because we all live in our own heads with our own experiences. We interact with the world in a particular way. The world interacts with us in a particular way. We've been exposed to certain information. We all have these beliefs really strongly lodged in our heads. And what we're looking at is the opportunity to be able to calibrate those beliefs, to make adjustments as to what we think is true and what we not so that we can develop the most accurate model of the objective truth. When we swat away that that person who's shorting the the mortgage, you know, the subprime mortgages, because that just sort of disagrees with us, we lose that opportunity in all sorts of different ways. It now that's going to realize in terms of what our net worth is, but at the base of it is that we lose the opportunity to calibrate a belief. And at the base of every single decision that we make is a belief that informs it. So if we aren't paying really strong attention and you saying that's what really matters to us, not the money, because the money is the result, but at the base of it, at the core of it is what we believe. Are we getting better at recognizing these cognitive distortions, at trying to collect more information, not swatting away the ideas of people with whom we disagree? Because you talk in your book about the state department's dissent channel. You talk about CIA's red team, which I guess was implicated in the Osama bin Laden raid. They help kind of push that forward. Uh, We're seeing a lot more research on it from people like yourself and Daniel Kahneman and uh, what was uh, Gilbert? What's his first name? Dan Gilbert. Dan Gilbert. Are we getting better at recognizing? Gary Klein does. Yeah. And and like creating these pods of people who help us. Phil Tetlock. Yeah. There's just so there's just so many more people who are saying Cass Sunstein who are saying, you know, Creating echo chambers, not going out and seeking additional information. Yeah, it's just you can just and and you have a you have a recommended reading at the end of your book with with a lot of these people in there. Are we getting better at least recognizing the benefits of it? If even if we as individuals through evolutionary psychology, which I mean, this is this is a result of our evolution that we we kind of seek confirmation bias. We are motivated reasoners as, as, um, Jonathan Haidt talks about it. We, you know, where the elephant is driving up, we're the man on top of the elephant. Uh, you know, how, how are, how is this all sorting out moving forward? Oh gosh. Like, I feel like it's kind of like, you know, sort of good news, bad news. So at least look, our institutions seem to be recognizing it. at least inst- some of them, our institutions, <laughs> some of them. Our institutions do seem to be recognizing, but if we think about it, I mean, John Stuart Mill was a really long time ago. Like 1859, he, yeah. He was he was writing about this very issue. I mean, one of the things that I mean, he's there's a couple of things that I would pull, and I'm going to loosely quote. One, you know, one is he who knows only his side of the argument knows little of that, right? Yeah. Which I think is a I think that is a quote that everybody should know, mm-hmm. uh, because I think that that's the thing that's really true. But but what that's really getting down to, and he has a much longer. Uh, you know, bid on this, and and I would recommend people go. Read and he and he also, I mean, liberty. he also. There's so many arguments that he makes that can have some sort of connection. To this he said both teachers and learners go to sleep when there's no enemy in the field. I mean, not having right. people out there that force you to justify your own position exactly. is to your own detriment. And he makes, even though it feels better. I think that this is. I think this is one of the most compelling things that he says is, even if you are certain 
certain of the truth that you believe, Mm -hmm. that you still must engage with people who honestly believe the other side because otherwise it becomes stale. It just becomes a thing you believe. You have no idea why. And in engaging with people who honestly believe the other side, one of two things happens. Either you at least understand why you believe what you do so that the truth is not atrophied, or you adjust your position. Isn't that great? I think that people are afraid of adjusting their position because in the moment they have to say, ooh, I was wrong, and that feels really horrible. But if we go back to this idea that our beliefs are at the base of every single decision that we make, isn't that a great thing when you figure out that you're supposed to calibrate a belief, when you figure out that you're supposed to change your mind even just a little bit because that means that your decisions are going to be better for it because the beliefs that are informing them are more accurate. So, yeah, you might take a little pain in the moment, but think about the quality of the increase to the quality of all your decisions. And we can think about, in terms of humanity, beliefs that we were 100% sure of. In terms of humanity, here's one. The sun revolves around the earth. Isn't it good that people genuinely believe something else and that that argument was created? So, So I do think that these ideas have been around for a long time. I think that when we look at our framers, when we look at the Federalist Papers, I think that a lot of these ideas are, you know, woven into this idea of dissent. And how do we create constructive dissent? How do we make sure that there isn't one decider, that there's a marketplace of ideas that are clashing with each other? And I think it's built into the foundations of, of this country. So... I I do think these ideas have been around for a long time. I do think they're being implemented in a more kind of like thoughtful and structural way in some places like red teams um, in the CIA, the dissent channel in the State Department. And I think that's a good thing. I do see that um, the tribalism, though, is the real bad news. Yeah, you see that in more of the more political institutions and even institutions that are just like one standard deviation away from politics are being infiltrate, right. infiltrated it's, by exactly. politics. So, so the problem with the tribal the tribalism problem is that if you hear information that disagrees with you when you're not in an open-minded stance. Uh-huh. Well, the, the, the definition of a tribe is almost by nature the fact that they exclude it people from the right. other tribe exactly. and presumably the information that comes from the other tribe. Well, it's not just that they exclude the information that comes from the other side. It's that if they ex- are exposed to it, it will backfire and cause them to actually in- increase their own position, to mm-hmm. entrench in their own position. Yeah. Because a tribe kind of gives you four things. And I really recommend people go look at, for example, like Jay Van, Van Bivel's work on this, which mm-hmm. is, he's out of NYU. He, he's done some really great work on this. But um, basically tribe is giving you four things. One is belongingness. That's obvious. I belong to something. Yeah. Two is distinctiveness. That's what you said. I'm different than those other people. Uh-huh. But here are the two really bad things um, that it's giving you. One is it's telling you what is moral and what isn't. So that's sort of like, you know, when you think about what John Hyde talks about with like the sacrament, mm-hmm. right? And then sacred you values. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So you can't violate the sacred values. That's the, the morality piece. And then it also gives you epistemic closure, which is certain knowledge. Now you can imagine, I'm like, no, uh, you should have a tribe that's about epistemic openness, right? Yeah. That that it's like that um, strong convictions loosely held, right? Like mm-hmm. we sort of want to be those people. But the epistemic closure is like, we again, we're not comfortable with uncertainty. And one of the things the tribe is telling you is what is right and what is wrong. Now within the tribe, so what that means is there are trusted sources within your tribe who tell you these things, who say, These are the sacred values. This is what is moral and what is not. And this is what is true and what is not. 
and and take this as a matter of faith. Do not question. These are certain truths, right? So if and I see evolutionarily, tr- we're primed for that. Right, because we did better when we banded together as tribes, uh-huh. right? Because like, we don't have big claws and huge teeth and the ability to fight off predators one-on-one. Well, that's why I think sort of our not being engaged in any big wars at this moment is making us focus more on politics because it's where we can go and find our tribe. And, you know, the bowling alone phenomenon, we don't have these civic institutions anymore. Religion yeah. is on the, the downward spot. It's just we don't have anything outside of politics, it seems, anymore to to – cling ourselves to and our evolutionarily we're pr- we need sort of belonging and something and right now people and are gravitating toward politics yes exactly. and, and <laughs> if politics poisons everything that yeah. it touches uh boy and I, and i think if you view political tribes through the lens of religion as as you just said i think that you get a good view into what that looks like i think it is becoming very much like a religion where there's you know the sacrament and there's uh things that are true and you take things on faith and it's us versus them, and uh, I think that there's a lot of kind of overlap in the in the way that you in, in the way that those things are sort of playing into our tribal nature and our belief systems, right? I mean, a lot of it is that the universe is a really big unknown, and and there's all sorts of stuff that we don't know about it. We don't really understand our origins. We don't understand what happens after we're gone, and looking for closure on that, looking for us to tell people to tell us what's true and what's not. And the other thing is that we don't really know what's right and wrong because it's hard, right? There's a lot of uncertainty. Well, many of us think we know what's, what's right, right and wrong. wrong. I mean, that's that's one of the arguments I make about free speech uh, that undergirds censorship. It's what John Stuart Mill talked about. It's the idea uh, that you know, the censor thinks they are infallible. It's that their certainty is the same thing as absolute certainty. It's the reverse. It's like, I I heard someone say this once is like, I always think I'm right, but I don't think I'm always right. Right. The, yeah. Which is that, that's again, that's like uh, strong convictions loosely held. Yes, right? exactly. So that's a nice way to put it. So, yeah, I mean, because look, I can get into, you know, in terms of what's right and wrong. Is it right to kill somebody? Everybody says no, mm-hmm. definitively. Well, what if you're in a war? Yeah. Right. What if um, someone is trying to kill you? Mm -hmm. Um, Is it right to steal? No. Well, what if your grandmother's dying and the only way for you to get a medicine to save her is to go steal it from a pharmacy? Then is it okay? It's a classic philosophical question from the trolley. Do you pull the lever on the trolley? Right. Are you uh, who are you saving? Who are you not saving? These are actually incredibly hard questions. We don't deal with this kind of uncertainty. Well, we want closure. On these issues, and this is what tribe offers us. So, so the answer is yes. I think that we understand a lot more about it. I think that there are places where you're seeing it implemented a lot better. But what I see is through this tribal problem that there's a lot of slippage now. I think in a lot of ways that we're going backwards. Um, and unless we can somehow find our way to a definition of tribe that I think we used to have as Americans, then I think that we're going to be in trouble. It's it's kind of interesting because I think that one of the things that the Cold War did for us brought us together. Yeah, it brought us together. I was ever, had, I was yeah. having this very kind of cynical conversation with my parents recently, and I said, I think the only thing that can bring us together is like a common enemy or even a war. And you don't even you don't want to hope for that. And I'm certainly not hoping for that. But I very strongly recall what happened after 9-11 and how my, at least my community in suburban Chicago banded together in a way that I still remember to this day. Because you, you all of a sudden defined yourself as American, uh-huh. not as Republican, Democrat, whatever. It's mm-hmm. like you were American. 
So I'm um, look, I'm not wishing for the Cold War. I, that was uh-huh. a very scary time. But you can sort of see how it redefined the tribe that you belong to. So now what happens is that we view a common enemy as people who live within the same country as we do, right? Yeah. So Republicans now have a common enemy, which is Democrats. Democrats have a common enemy, which is Republicans. Even within those parties, you see this sort of common enemy kind of happening. And this where, is where John Haidt and Greg Lukianoff in their most recent book, this is one of their three great untruths that the world is divided into good and evil people. Right, exactly. And mm-hmm. and when you start to make your decisions based on common enemy mm-hmm. as opposed to common good, um, I think that that's where we can really get into some big trouble. So unless we can somehow get some sort of realignment or, or shifting, I'm not, you know, I, I have... Again, I'm like I'm, I'm optimistic in some ways. I'm yeah. really pessimistic in other well, ways. Well, we need. Uh, you you mentioned the founding of America it was the first nation that was ever really founded on ideas, right? And right. it was the idea of the individual, and and I think at as least, opposed to like the divine power uh, of somebody. Yeah, yeah. And I think you can. It is possible. It's probably very difficult to create a culture in which we are skeptical of ourselves. You talk about this uh, the psychology here, uh, in which it feels twice as bad to make a bad decision than it does to make a good decision. Like, so yeah. it's, it's more powerful emotionally to make a bad decision than a good decision. So or to we, feel like you made a bad yeah. decision than a good decision, yeah. But uh, we need to create a culture in which when we recognize that we make bad decisions, we don't take that uh, to heart as much so that it allows us to analyze our decisions more analytically or rationally. I, I think you could potentially create a culture on that. And I, I, I think that you can. I think it's about, you know, what are you rewarding? I mean, right? it is a, it is kind of self-help, exactly, actually, when you talk well, we about what we're, we're rewarding your... ourselves when we do it that way. Yeah, so let's talk about your water heater. Yeah, so let's, right. <laughs> that's all I've been talking about. Well, it's the, it's the most important thing. That yeah, I've heard yeah, seriously, at least but financially. We can, take, <laughs> you can, we can take your water heater, right? It's uh-huh. like you can, it, and it depends on what you're being rewarded for. You can take this thing that happened and you can sit there and you can beat yourself up about it and you can ruminate about it and you can say, mm-hmm. why was I so stupid? And then you can sort of like, you know, catastrophe. Why did I even buy this mm-hmm. house? This was a stupid decision. Like you can make it a much bigger thing and generalize and all this stuff. Or, I can or you can say, it. oh, my gosh, I'm so mm-hmm. lucky that this happened to me because mm-hmm. now I know mm-hmm. that this is a thing that I have to worry about for the rest of my life. And now not only do I know this, but when my friends are buying a place, I can warn them if you're not moving in mm-hmm. for a while, not only make sure that you drain the water heater, but turn I was that lucky, turn that fuse box off. So now you're going to be able to spread that knowledge uh-huh. to other people because you now have it. And isn't that going to mm-hmm. create so much good for the world? Yeah. Right. So it's about how you frame it. And this is and one it of eliminates the things... risks for many people in my life. Exactly. life. That's why free speech. I mean, we're not in the water heater situation. I'd never be controversial. No one would ever ask for censorship. But like, you know, bigger right. questions, having that information out there. Does is the emperor wearing clothes or not wearing clothes? Exactly. And so so, you know, I'm a big fan of saying, look, we have like the mindware that we have mm-hmm. and I'm not going to be able to say, well, I don't do confirmation bias and I'm completely open minded mm-hmm. and I have no tribe. And mm-hmm. I because I mean, these are things that are really built into us. So I think it's a matter of, of kind of with real intention saying, how can I sort of take what these tendencies are mm-hmm. and use them in order to create a reward system that actually rewards things that that 
uh, align with sort of reaching my long-term goals. Yeah. So if I understand that my long-term goals are like to have pretty good outcomes in my life and to increase mm-hmm. the probability of, of those and have beliefs that are generally true and to be open-minded and all of these things, I can now band together with some other people and say, we're going to make a different type of agreement. So and That's what you did in poker. Right. When you come to me and you say – hey, I had this really bad reaction to my water heater breaking mm-hmm. and I'm really beating myself up about it and I think that maybe it was my fault. Let me tell you the decision. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about it. Now I'm offering up my opinion to you. And if one of my opinions is, wow, actually you really could have known about that if you'd looked on any site about whatever, then you're not going to be sad. You're going to say, thank you. Thank you for letting me know that this is something that I could have found out beforehand because now I know that it's available and I can go look at these things. Or I can say, no, you don't know, but isn't it great yeah, that you, that do you know, know now this- because because now you can go change. And what we're doing is we're changing what the interaction is. If we think about echo chambers, mm-hmm. it's like – This is cognitive behavioral therapy. I'm thinking about that a lot with Greg and John. Right, exactly. Cognitive American Mind. It's like looking at our decisions rationally, not right. engaging in black and white thinking, engaging in catastrophizing, engaging in uh, – uh, There's, I mean there's a number of cognitive exactly. distortions that you could engage in because here, and are very easy yeah. for us to engage in. Here's how the normal interaction goes. Mm-hmm. I read this opinion piece in the New York Times. I think it's awesome. What do you think? And you're like, it's awesome. And we're like, great. We love each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you said, actually, no, I actually really deeply disagreed with that. I'm like, oh, different tribe. So mm-hmm. that's kind of how it normally goes. And so what happens is we tend to form these groups that are all like, we agree. We agree. We're all awesome. We're so great. And the problem with that is that even if within that group where there's all this natural agreement, you think that you're sort of like, well, what would the other side say? It's like you're really – you tend to be just creating straw mans left and right. And then what you're really doing is patting yourselves on the back for being so good at arguing against a straw man. What you want to do is create a group that naturally creates sort of steel man arguments that you must defend against, right? Sort of to that point of John Stuart Mill, right? Like you've got to be arguing against people who generally believe something that is different than what you believe. You have to be seeking that information out. And you can create a group that rewards that where when you come to me and say, you know what? I really believe this thing, but now I read this other piece from someone who I think is really an expert. And I think I've changed my mind. Let's talk about it. And then I can be like, that's amazing. You know, and you can say, I think I made a really big mistake. That's so great that you recognize that. That's awesome. What was it? So I can learn from it. And notice that what's happening is you're getting all the same social reinforcement, right? Yeah. You're getting the I like you, right? I'm getting to interact with people whose opinion I respect and they're they're reinforcing me in a way that actually is creating that kind of open-mindedness. It's like we're redefining tribe. Our tribe is now like the mistake admitters, like the yeah. belief calibrators, the uh, opposite opinion seekers, you know, the we want to find out everything we know about why we're wrong people. And that's now what's being reinforced. And if you came to me and you said – Oh, you know, I was I read this thing and that person's just an idiot. I'd be like, really? What? You know, and now you're not getting reinforced for that kind of behavior. So I do think that with intention, we can change at least locally within our lives. We can change what the social contract is. Now, what's great is that if you have a lot of people doing that in a local way, Mm -hmm. guess what happens? It spreads. It spreads, yeah. That has that contagion effect. There, Hopefully, <laughs> a good kind of contagion. So uh, before there's, you know, there's the the free speech discussion that we could continue to have. It could go forever. I mean, I I was also I wasn't familiar with this book before I read it. Um, 
you mentioned it in your book, which is Samuel Arbenzman's The Half-Life of Facts. Facts. It's so great. He argues that practically every fact has been subject to revision or or reversal. Yeah, so here's some examples. Like there was a very long time that we thought that coelacanths were extinct mm-hmm. and they're not. And the number of species that have become like unextinct, like they're so huge. And you can think about simple things like the sun revolves around the earth. The earth is flat, although, you know, that yeah. some people still believe that. But um, Or that fats are just the enemy. Fats are the enemy. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, sugar, who cares? Although that could presumably be subject that, to reversal as well. That might be subject to but reversal But that's why we need well. to keep letting the like information Like right now in. there's there's stuff going around about statins. Like, mm-hmm. you know, are statins – uh, you know, what, the idea was that because people who have heart disease have high cholesterol, people were, you know, there's there was an assumption that high cholesterol causes heart disease. So if you lower the cholesterol, then clearly you would lower the heart disease. But it may be that the high cholesterol and the heart disease are outcomes of something else. Yeah. So we don't know, right? I mean, the thing is that we're revising these things all the time, and he's really arguing that you have to hold these things loosely. And you can think about this in your own life. Like, this is a question that I ask people all the time. Is there something you believed, like, super strongly that you were like totally sure of when you were 20 that uh-huh. you don't believe now. Oh, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't want to sit here for like five minutes and think about it, but oh yeah, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, the list would be long, uh-huh. right? So so that's what he's saying about the half-life of facts. It's like uh-huh. what's happening sort of in terms of humanity and understanding that these, you know, there's this ever-evolving, you know, knowledge as we start to understand that. Think about all the the information that we had before we could see an atom. Mm-hmm. And then think how you could see things that were – before you could see things that were subatomic, yeah. right, for example. In our own lives, that's true as well. There's so many things I believed when I was 20, like all of them, <laughs> that are just – I look back on that and I'm like, what was I thinking? So why do I think that the things that I believe today are any different? That's mm-hmm. what you have to understand. It's not different today just because some time has passed. Yeah, we shouldn't tackle Francis Fukuyama believe that we've reached the end of history no. that, You know, with our knowledge. Right, or our own it's, history. Yeah. Right? Like, I mean, we have to think about that in terms of humanity but then also individually as well. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Annie, thank you so much for coming on the show, and I hope to have you on again. Sometime. Oh, well, thank you. This was a lot of fun. That was decision strategist and professional poker player Annie Duke. Her book is Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts. You can learn more about Annie and her work by visiting AnnieDuke.com. That is A-N-N-I-E Duke.com or by visiting her on Twitter at at Annie Duke. Yeah, it's just at Annie Duke. Uh, This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and edited by my colleague, Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. You can also email us feedback at so to speak at the fire.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts. As I remind you all every week or every other week, I should say reviews help us attract new listeners to the show until next time. Again, thanks for listening. <laughs>